too awkward. I don't even know what I believe about it. I don't even know where I stand on the issue. I'm too scared to talk about it. I just don't want to go there. It's too painful. Jesus had the courage to talk about this stuff. Maybe we can too. Well, good evening, Saturday night. I wasn't sure there wasn't going to be anybody here. I mean, it's like 85 degrees outside, but I appreciate the fact that you walked inside and decided to spend some time together. I've been gone for the last couple of weeks on vacation, and it's always good to come home to uh, our family of faith here at Christ the King. I miss you guys when I'm gone, and it's always nice to be able to come home and just see everybody. And uh, in the last little bit, uh, this last week has been a difficult one for our church family, so we're going to stop and have a little family moment before we really, before we really dive into the content of tonight. Uh, we want to pray for Rochelle. Rochelle is the, is the young lady who runs our fourth and fifth grade ministry here at Christ the King. We love her to death. And uh, Rochelle's mom, Brenda, passed away yesterday. It just, it, it just kind of hit us uh, in, in a tough way. The beautiful thing about Brenda's story is that uh, she came to Jesus this past Easter right here. And so we have the hope of knowing that, that, that we actually have, we have days in front of us when we're going to get to spend time with Brenda and get to know her as her family. But that doesn't mean it's going to make it any easier for Rochelle. So we're going to pray for Rochelle tonight. We're going to pray for Stormy. Uh, Stormy Edge is a young lady from our church. She's an amazing young woman. And uh, Stormy's five-year-old daughter, Kiona, uh, otherwise known as Kiki, passed away after an unbelievable battle. Um, that little girl took on a disease with every bit of strength that a, that a five-year-old could, uh, could muster. And, uh, and, uh, and, and she's home with heaven in heaven now, and we are thankful for that, but that doesn't make it any easier for Stormy. And then we're also going to pray for Katie Steele. Uh, Brian Steele's one of our pastors. Katie, his wife, uh, about 14 days ago, uh, had a seizure, just kind of happened. And if you know Katie, she's super in shape, uh, really, really physically fit, and that seizure kind of caught everybody off guard. They found a walnut-sized brain tumor. Uh, and then on Monday, she had brain surgery down at UW. Uh, they were able to remove the tumor, for which we're thankful. And it looks like she's going to make a complete and full recovery. And I asked, I asked, uh, asked the Lord, you know, uh, or asked Brian today, hey, can we pray for you guys? And he's just like, yeah, uh, you certainly can, because the recovery is very traumatic and very in-depth. So, um, church, let's just stop before we dive into what God has for us. And, and let's pray and talk to the only person who can do anything about these three situations by really, really touching them. Would you pray with me tonight? Father God, we come fully dependent and a little unsure of, of how to pray in the midst of this. So God, you said we could come to your throne room, so that's exactly what we're going to do. Jesus, we come boldly to your throne room and we ask, would you be the Prince of Peace and a wonderful counselor to Rochelle in the loss of her mom and Stormy in the loss of Kiki. God, would you surround them and would you use us to be that surrounding? God, would you allow us to be the kind of people that would love them in the midst of all the hurt and all the pain and all the questions? God, would, we, would you allow us to be a safe place for them? God, you know exactly what it feels like to lose a loved one. When you gave Jesus, you know what it feels like to lose a child. Lord, you know what it's like to lose one that you love more than anything. So God, would you come alongside of these two sweet sisters and be 
be everything that they need right now. And God, for Katie, would, would, you, help, uh, would you help her to recover fully and completely? God, you know how much she loves you. You know how much she loves to pray. She's so passionate when it comes to worshiping you. God, I pray for, for her and for Brian right now. Lord, would you allow this to be a moment when she just turns the corner physically, when she begins to gain strength again? God, we thank you for the miraculous way you lined up everything, every detail that needed to be done to get Katie in for that surgery that fast. And now, God, would you bring that miracle full circle so we could brag about you and how good you are. So, Lord Jesus, we, we commit these three sisters to you. We thank you for the honor it is to be their family. May they know how much they're loved by you and by us tonight. And we pray these things in your good name. And all God's people said, amen. amen. Growing up, we had table rules at the Fishbook family. My mom was in charge of the rules and my dad enforced them. That's how it worked in our family. And the rules went basically like this. Don't talk with your mouth full. Uh, chew with your mouth closed, right? Keep your elbows off the table. You guys grew up in the same family I did. I don't remember you at dinner, but uh, that's all right. Uh, we had a, a unique one in the Fishbook family, which was keep one foot on the floor at all times, which tells you kind of how we operated when it came to consuming food. There were other rules. Empty your plate, no reading at the table. You always had to help clear the table. You had to help with the dishes. That was just assumed. Another rule was you always say thanks to the person who made the meal. That's just the way that it was. And of course, before you left, another rule was you had to ask permission to be excused. So you didn't just get to get up from the table and walk away. You actually had to say, may I be excused? Thanks for dinner. Can I help with the dishes? And we'd go through the checklist. That's just the way dinner was. Well, this weekend, as we close up our Taboo series, I don't want to invite you to the Fishbook family table, but I would like to invite you to Jesus' table. This is a table where, where Jesus called his family together. But, but we, often, we often like to sanitize this moment. We like to make it pretty. We like to Americanize it because we know that all good things are supposed to be done in order and nobody's supposed to raise their voice and nobody's supposed to freak out. And you most certainly don't break any of the taboos, right? Which is you don't talk about politics or religion at the dinner table. That's just the way that it's supposed to be. But tonight we're going to actually step into a moment where we may actually find more taboo at the table than we actually think is there. Mark chapter 14, starting in verse 12, says this, if you'd like to follow along in your outline or in your Bible. On the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, when it was customary to sacrifice the Passover lamb, Jesus' disciples asked him, where do you want us to go and make preparations for you to eat the Passover? So he sent two of his disciples telling them, go into the city and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. Say to the owner of the house that he enters, the teacher asks, where's my guest room, where I may eat the Passover with my disciples. He will show you a large room upstairs, furnished and ready, make preparations for us there. The disciples left, went into the city and found things just as Jesus had told them, so they prepared the Passover. So it's a good Jewish group of guys, and they've got a good Jewish leader, and so they're going to observe the Passover, which was a, a, a festival, a remembrance, looking back to a time uh, back in Egypt when God sent a judgment against the people of Egypt, and they put the blood, the Israeli people put the blood over top of the doorposts, and, and, and the angel of death passed over them and, 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 and broke the heart of Egypt essentially. 
And they were supposed to go back and revisit how it was that God showed up and delivered them and protected them and, and their children. Now, for just a second, can you do me a favor? Don't look at your outline, okay? Don't look at your Bible. Just picture in your head what happens next. When evening came, Jesus arrived with the twelve. While they were reclining at the table, he said, Truly I tell you, one of you is going to betray me. One who is eating with me. What just happened to dinner? They were saddened, and one by one they said to him, Surely you don't mean me. It's one of the twelve, he replied, one who dips bread into the bowl with me. The Son of Man will go, just as it is written about him. But woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man, which is a fancy name for Jesus. It would be better for him if he'd not been born. Boy, dinner just took a crazy turn, didn't it? While they were eating, Jesus took bread. So think about that for just a second. It's already been a crazy night. Jesus shows up. All of these prophecies fulfill. They end up in an upper room. He does something crazy. He washes the feet of his disciples, and everybody freaks out. You're not supposed to do that. Masters don't wash the feet of their servants. It's supposed to be the other way around. And then he drops this bomb. Somebody's going to betray me. One of the 12 sitting right here right now, they're going to betray me. Oh, and by the way, here it comes. Jesus took bread. When he'd given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples. Take it. This is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he'd given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, he said to them. He throws communion into the middle of all of this. Truly, I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it in the new kingdom of God. And when they'd sung a hymn, they went out to the mount of olives. So, do you understand this? This is supposed to be a quiet moment of history and reflection, but instead it's turned into taboo talk of, of betrayal and tradition and conflict. It's not normally the way we picture communion, is it? Like, we, we, we line up when we do communion. We, 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 we stand to the side of the line. We, we're, like, we're, we're, we're orderly around here. We're nice to each other. We, we, we observe the rules. That's the way it's supposed to be, not the way the original communion went down. I mean, it's quite a start to the dinner conversation, isn't it? One of you will betray me. Excuse me? Couldn't be me. Couldn't be me. Peter's like, certainly not me. Thomas is like, I doubt that it would be me. I mean, it's just like, just the way that it would go around the table, right? And then when, when that conversation dies down, Jesus does something you're not supposed to do. Jesus messes with the Passover. You're not supposed to mess with the Passover. That's like, that's like at Christmas time messing with the character Mary. You just don't do that. This is crazy. You don't take a bread and a cup and throw yourself into the middle of it. You don't start talking about cannibalism in the middle of the Passover. Think about it, right? Here's my blood. Here's my body. It's all busted up. Here you go. What? You were supposed to stick to the script. You were supposed to talk about the great lengths that God would go to to save his children. Oh. He's going to talk about the great lengths that God's going to go to to save his children. You also don't have a fight afterwards about who, which one of you is the greatest. That happens another time, different sermon, Okay. Just a nice family meal filled with anger, betrayal, conflict, and cannibalism. What a great way to come to church, right? 
And I want to stop and introduce you just for a second to the family of Jesus that's actually gathered around this table. Okay? I put him in your outline so you could follow along. Let's start, let's start with Peter. Peter's the brash one, always talking, opinion about everything. You've got an uncle just like Peter, don't you, right? Drives you nuts every time. John, the trusted one. Let's put John right here just for a second because John's like the loving one. And so if Jesus is here, John right beside him every single time. Peter and John. Philip, there's the outreach one. Philip the evangelist. Always thinking, we should have invited more people to this dinner. We should have handed out cards. We should have sung just as I am. We should have had an altar call. This is an amazing moment, right? Oh, and then there's Matthew. Nobody would have liked Matthew. He's the despised one, former tax collector. Really? Why's the government guy got to be here? Member of the IRS. Wouldn't you like to invite your IRS guy over to your, over your family dinner? That's just perfect, right? Then there's Thaddeus, the unknown one. Nobody even really knows who this guy is. Just happened to show up. Then Judas. Oh, we got the money guy, right? And we love having Judas at the table because he's just so easy to judge until we ask ourselves a question. Anybody else here ever betrayed Jesus? Ever once in your life just one time? Then there's James, the committed one. He's the one who shows up in the book of Acts and says, Hey guys, can we just make sure we don't make it difficult for those people that are coming to Jesus, please? Then there's Andrew. He's the gathering one. He's the one that makes sure that, that everybody had a place at the table. Then there's Bartholomew, the honest one. And then there's another guy named James, completely unknown. We don't really know anything about him at all. And then, of course, oh, there's got to be one at every single table. Let's put him in the back left-hand corner, right? Okay, Simon the political one, right? And he's always talking about policy and all this kind of stuff and arguing, and he brings his sandwich board along with him. He's the political one. And then in the far back corner, just kind of doing his own thing, is Thomas the dedicated questioning one. Gets a bad rap. I'm going to talk about him for a second. And if you read your Bible, the dynamics of this group are legendary. So I can't even imagine what the table would have looked like that first night when everybody's having this great big conversation. All of a sudden, Jesus drops this betrayal bomb right in the middle of them, right? Every single one of them comes face to face with their taboo. I mean, I just have to imagine it this way, right? Peter's the brash one with the uncontrolled tongue and the anger issues. James is the committed one. He just wants everybody to get along. John's the loved one. He's the teacher's pet, which means everybody else hates him. That's how it goes, right? Andrew's the one who who would have gone outside and make sure that we could cross cultural lines and racial lines and everybody should have a place here at this particular table. Sure, that caused a little tension. Philip just wanted everybody to meet Jesus. Bartholomew was the social conscience of the group. I mean, he was always known, you know, can I, guys, can I just be honest? You know, no, you can't. Matthew, the hated one, because the fishermen would have hated him because it was their taxes that he collected. Simon the Zealot would have hated him because he represented a government that he, that he couldn't stand. Simon, the political one. I mean, he's just all wrapped up in his own stuff. James and Thaddeus, I mean, you don't think they experienced the taboo of loneliness? We don't know anything about these guys. Judas the treasurer turned his back on Jesus. And then there's Thomas with his flip-flopping back and forth. One day he's dedicated. The next day he's filled with all kinds of questions. I mean, that's quite the group, isn't it? Would you invite these guys over for dinner? 
And they all have issues with some of the taboos that we've talked about over the last number of weeks. By the way, we are officially going to do a taboo too, because I've got more topics that you guys kept throwing them at me. I'm just like, well, we can only do these ones now. Next summer, we'll probably do another one of these. But I want to spend just a moment and leave the guys at the table so we can focus in on one guy. Let's just talk about Thomas for a second, okay? So can you do me a favor? Can, can you put him on this stool just for a second? Because we want to talk about him like he's really here. Because normally we don't, right? If you grew up like me in church, you used to sing nasty songs about Thomas, right? Don't be a doubting Thomas. That was the name of the song, right? Well, instead of, of just bad-mouthing him, we're going we're to put him right here and we're going to talk with him for just a second. I think Thomas gets a bad rap. But we only know one part of his story, right? He's the guy that says, I'll believe it when I see it. Can't buy this whole resurrection thing. And we forget that, that just a little while earlier, there's another story about Thomas in Scripture. It happens in John chapter 11 in verse 16. Jesus all of a sudden announces to his disciples, hey guys, we're going back to Jerusalem. And the guys are like, whoa, 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 whoa. They wanted to kill you in Jerusalem. Jesus goes, exactly. And only one signs up to go along. Guess who it was? Thomas. John eleven sixteen. 16, Thomas, nicknamed the twin, said, Let's go to and die with Jesus. <laughs> wow, okay. That's not doubt. That's courage or stupidity. One of the two of them, right? I've always had a soft place in my heart for Thomas because I love how his brain works. So can we step in with a second with him just for a minute? So, so one night he's here and they're having this great big conversation. Jesus is breaking bread and talking about dying and, and his body being broken and his blood being poured out and this new covenant idea. And, and Thomas lives through all of that thinking, I thought we were going to Jerusalem to set up a whole new kingdom. And then he walks through a historical fact. He sees Jesus on a cross dead. That's his reality. And he can't deny the reality. And then... They take Jesus off of the cross, put him in a tomb. Three days later, people start telling these crazy stories about Jesus being alive again, which we all know is impossible. And Thomas happens not to be hanging out with the guys one night when they say, hey, Jesus showed up and talked to us. And Thomas is like, I wasn't here to see that. And then this moment happens. John chapter 20. Now, Thomas, one of the 12, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. The other disciples told him, we've seen the Lord. And he declared Unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my fingers where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Can you blame him? I can't blame him. I don't think he's being skeptical. I think he's actually just saying doubts out loud. My reality is this. I saw Jesus dead. Here's the problem for so many of us. We let our reality and our doubts push us to a faith, to push us to a place where our faith comes into question. Without fully acknowledging, it appears like God doesn't have a problem with people who ask hard questions. The question is, can we stay in that, that, that tension place between doubts and skepticism? Because I want you to notice this. Doubt and skepticism are not the same thing. I stole some thoughts this week. It go like this. An honest doubter is thirsty. Thirsty for an answer that quenches their thirst. A stubborn skeptic, on the other hand, they're an addict. 
No amount of intake will satisfy them. Any answer we provide just seems to worsen their condition. An honest doubter is confused. A stubborn skeptic has already made up his mind. Perhaps honest doubt is a sign of genuine perplexity, while stubborn skepticism is a sign of arrogant disbelief. You know what? I have no problem with people who doubt. I'm a natural doubter. I want to see just a little bit of proof. But I also know this. Doubt is the humble person actually seeking the answer to a question. Skepticism is when an arrogant person says, there's no way that can be true, and I've already made up my mind, so you can't convince me otherwise. Do you see the difference? One's based in humility, the other's based in arrogance. Thomas had sincere doubt, and this is what I love. Jesus was not freaked out by that, which means this. If you have hard questions, good. Ask them. Press in. Don't be satisfied with bumper sticker Christian answers. Press in and actually be open to living with the answer when God reveals it to you. I want you to notice this. Skepticism thrives in isolation. When I meet skeptics, I always find that there are certain characteristics about them. And they usually go like this. They were left to their own thoughts. They got wrapped in their own opinion. And most of their friends are isolated bloggers who hide in other people's basements and never come up to see the light of day. It's just been my experience. And I totally understand. If you isolate yourself so it's just your brain interacting with your questions, I totally understand how you can get to the place of being a cynic. Not only does skepticism thrive in isolation, but skepticism resists faith-based answers. I'm going to tell you something. Skeptics have no room for the miraculous or the supernatural. There's just no room there. But I want you to notice this about Thomas. Thomas wasn't there. He just wanted one thing. He wanted a personal face-to-face encounter with the Jesus that he saw dead. I think that's a realistic request. But I, wanted to miss, I don't want us to miss this. We've got to flip this skepticism thing over, right? I want you to know something. Doubt is safe within a community, especially this community. The Bible says Thomas's doubt was present because he was not. The Bible actually says this. Now, Thomas, one of the 12, was not with the disciples when Jesus came, okay? That's huge because I'm always asking the question, where was he? Anybody know? Nope, because the Bible doesn't tell us. All we know is this. He left the safety of his community, and ended up in a different place. I'm thankful he only made it to doubt and not to skepticism. What's the application for all of us? If you have doubting questions and there's nothing wrong with having doubting questions, be present. Be present in environments where you can actually ask the hard questions. I think I freak people out all the time when I say, you know, Grant, I'm just really struggling to try and wrap my head around this Christianity thing. What's one of the, what's one thing I can do? And I keep saying the same thing. Just show up. Just keep showing up. Be with God's people. Ask hard questions. Press in. Go to Alpha. Get in a small group and don't be afraid to speak up and say, I got a question about that. It just doesn't make sense to me. All through the New Testament, you hear this about the church over and over again, and they were all together. 
keep saying it over and over again. And they were all together. When life was hard, they were all together. When life was easier and they had the blessing of the city, they were all together. When one was struggling, they were all together. They just kept sticking together. My friends, that's a clue. It's not rocket science. That's a clue. We're supposed to be all together, pressing in when we have doubts. Now, the reality is this. Not every question has an adequate answer, but a thirsty soul keeps digging and pressing in. Let me say this again. Doubt is also willing to live with an answer. I love John Ortberg's words. He said this. For many of us, the great danger in doubting is not that we will renounce our faith. It's that we will become so distracted and rushed and preoccupied that we will settle for a mediocre version of it. Don't settle for a mediocre version of faith. Ask the tough questions. Press in. It's not going to phase or freak God out. Thomas refused a mediocre version of an answer. So this is what Jesus did. Verse 26. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. (laughs) Easy for him to say, right? Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand. Put it in my side. Stop doubting and believe. You know what I love about the story? It does not say that Thomas said, okay, all right, here here I come. It just comes out of his mouth. My Lord and my God, I got enough right now. You showed up. I just needed to see you. I needed to experience you right here, and you showed up. So I don't need, I don't need what I thought I needed. I just need to make this personal declaration. My Lord and my God right here, right now. And then comes a word from Jesus to all the sincere doubters in the room. Can I tell you this? If you're a doubter, I'm so glad you're here. Because you and I have a lot in common. I don't like pat answers. I don't like easy believism. I don't like things that I can figure out. Because I got a question for you. If you can figure out God, what kind of God is that? What kind of God is that? And this, Jesus told them, because you have seen me, you've believed. Now here it comes to every single one of you. This is just, this is it for all of us tonight. Blessed are those who've not seen and yet have believed. Blessed are you because you haven't seen physically like this. Maybe some of you have. I think God can do anything. But blessed are you who've never seen, but you still in your heart believe in spite of your questions, in spite of those nagging things that sit in the bottom of your soul. In spite of that, God still says, you're so blessed because you're sticking with me. So to those who believe without even seeing, welcome to the taboo table of God's grace. Two things about Thomas you need to know. He traveled further as a missionary than any other disciple. I went to his tomb in in India. There's this beautiful white cathedral built over top of it. Thomas went to India and he was martyred there for the sake of Jesus. The Jesus that Thomas doubted was the same Jesus that Thomas died for. Do you get that? Because he was convinced. 
And where did Jesus, or where did Thomas hear for the first time about this mission that was actually worth dying for? Where did he get that example for the very first time at a taboo table where betrayal and conflict and faith collided with every single participant's taboos? It was one of my great fears about the series before we started. I, I was afraid that it was going to divide our family. Because people often take sides when it comes to taboo topics. I mean, we've talked about domestic violence. We've talked about abortion. I mean, for the love of Jesus, we talked about politics. You'd think that would drive a wedge right down the center. But you know what the most amazing thing has happened? I think we're actually tighter than we've ever been before. Only God can do that. Only God can do that. Why is that possible? How is that possible? It's because of the same thing that happened at the first communion table. The centrality of Jesus, putting Jesus in the middle of all the taboos and all of the topics, the centrality of Jesus unified his followers, brought them to the table, and allowed them to move beyond their taboos and their opinions. So I couldn't think of a better thing to do than to bring this series to a conclusion by coming to the same table. Like, you know you're welcome here, right? Like, do we get that? Do we? Yeah, thank you. You know that, that, that God has a place for anyone who is, has a personal relationship with Him to come to this table because He's still breaking bread. He's still pouring wine. He's still saying to people that this is my body which is broken for you. That this is the new covenant in my blood. And every time you remember it, you're supposed to remember me. He's still saying, check your heart before you get here. Don't come with unconfessed sin. Don't, don't come with garbage and junk. Confess it to me. If we confess our sin, he's faithful and just. We'll forgive our sin. Come with clean hands. That's God's table rule. When we were in Israel this past year, we go into an area of Palestine, and we eat at a restaurant called The Tent. It's a beautiful spot. Think... Uh, Think, think Alibaba and his 40 thieves, Aladdin. It's just, it's just these big, beautiful draperies. It's an actual tent, and you have lunch in there, and they feed you, and dessert is this, this beautiful thing. It's like, it's like Israeli baklava. It's like syrup and, and butter and stuff, and, and your doctor would freak out if you ate it, and you should eat it anyway because it's good. I mean, it's just one of those things, right? And, and we're having a discussion talking from our different perspectives and our guide whose name's Sam is there and we're having this conversation about why certain people in that country can't go into certain sections and why the Palestinian believers, Palestinian Christians are, are stuck behind this wall and, and, and we're talking and it's very animated and at some point it almost probably felt a little bit like conflict. Like, well, well no, Sam, you don't understand. And he's like, no, you don't understand. And we're talking back and forth, back and forth. And in the middle of this discussion, all of a sudden he grabs a chunk of bread and his cup and he goes, the body and blood of Christ for you. Because you Americans try to make it so pretty. You have to make everything pretty. It was family. It was tension. It wasn't clean. You're still freaking out about the betrayal part of it. I got a question, Christ the King. Some of us still need to freak out about the betrayal part of it. 
because we've betrayed him. And he died to invite us to the table. So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to pray. I'm going to invite the band to come and we're, and we're going to worship and we're, and we're going to have communion and we're going to do it messy on purpose. We're not going to line up in nice little rows. We're not going to have ushers dismiss you one person at a time. We're not going to do any of that stuff. Like we're going to do this as free, for, as a free-for-all as we can possibly do it. It's going to be gloriously horrible. It's going to be awesome, right? For those of you who are OCD, you're going to freak out and it's good, all right? Probably use a little mess in your life. It's fine. But in a moment, I'm going to dismiss you. And here's what's going to happen. That there are tables. There's tables up here. And there's tables all down the middle. And, and there's a table over here. And, and in a moment, Pastor Frank is going to go stand in the middle over there with a the tray. And I'm going, to, I'm going to stand up here with a tray. And, 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 and you may have all different ways that, that we're just going to kind of just open up the door because the table was messy. And we're going to celebrate the fact that God broke the biggest taboo. None of us deserve to come to the table. And he invited us anyway. The biggest party foul in history. You don't invite those kind of people to come to your table. You need the nice, tidy, religious folks. Not the way God does a party. So we're going to sing two songs. And during that time, I'm going to invite you, whenever God prompts you, if you want to, just come to the table, take a cup and a little piece of bread. You can take it back to your seat. You can do it up here. I don't care. There are no rules tonight. Freaking some of you out, right? You, so you, you can take it here. Or you can take your cup back. You can sit in your seat for a little while while we worship. Maybe you need a little, maybe you need a little bit more of a personal touch. Pastor Frank will be in the middle. I'll be standing here. Can I tell you something? We're not holding the tray because we're pastors. We're holding the tray because we're forgiven sinners. No difference between me and you. I got a microphone, so what? It took just as much of God's grace to forgive my pile as anybody else in the room. So we're going to sing two songs. We're going to enter in. When God prompts you, I just want you to come to wherever. Take the cup, the new covenant in his blood. Take the bread, his body broken for you. And dance all the way back to your seat. Thinking that God broke every single taboo for you. So, Pastor Frank, there you are, my friend. Hi. So Frank's going to grab one of those. I'll grab one of these. Andy's going to sing. We're just going to open it up, and we're just going to have this time together. When God prompts you, you come.